This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It is 5.08. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sharmila. And first up today, the Men's Club for Good Treatment and maybe some lessons that we can take away from them. Well, if you're wondering what this club is, it comes from Ecuador. So the Men's Club for Good Treatment is actually a counselling class that seeks to give men tools other than aggression to deal with conflict. Now, this was established back in 2010. And according to data, 65% of girls and women aged 15 to 49 in Ecuador experience violence. So this um, club or, or course is essentially a, uh, meant to address that, right? Um, the 20-day course involves one session a week focusing on changes in behavior, attitude to improve men's self-esteem and relationships. Um, and largely the men who attend this class are convicted domestic abusers who are attending court-ordered therapy, although there are others who choose to go voluntarily. So there's uh, breathing and stretching exercises, group discussions where uh, there are discussions about personal shortcomings, virtues and fears, things like that. And I think, broadly speaking, a lot of the participants have mentioned that they found it really helpful in terms of giving them new tools, new ways of thinking, although they did also say that at the beginning, I think some self-consciousness and perhaps just just uh, some deeply rooted beliefs about how men should behave kind of kept them from attending classes or kept them from wanting to go. But I think what you just said, Sharmila, the fact that it is convicted domestic abusers is particularly interesting because um, I do wonder sometimes about how it works in uh, Malaysia, for example, in which, yes, there is, of course, the legal recourse. We've established uh, that that's not a smooth path anyway, but there is that and you can have... Um, you. So it's a more punitive approach, right? But what happens after that when men go on to establish other relationships, for instance? Are there any tools that are given to to change the behaviour? Yes, because legal recourse is important, very important, but it doesn't necessarily address the root behaviour um, or the cause of that behaviour, right? And so that's where something like this um, counselling, whether court-ordered or not, uh, could come in. Because if you look at the results in just Ecuador, uh, the coordinator of this programme, Roberto Mancayo, said that the club has since helped 545 men and that to date there have been no repeat offenders. So that to me uh, seems like a very um, encouraging result. So we're talking about a counselling course or class in Ecuador that aims to give men tools, right, to deal, uh, to avoid domestic violence fundamentally. And we'd like to hear from you. Do you think something like this would be helpful here in Malaysia? You can call us double seven double three two nine hundred WhatsApp or voice note us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Bring forth Moolah, BFM 89.9. It is 5.11. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sharmila. And we're talking today about the Men's Club for Good Treatment, based in Ecuador, uh, a counselling group aiming to help or aiming to help convicted domestic abusers avoid repeating this behaviour. Joining us to talk about this is Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at AWAM. uh, And of course, you can send us your thoughts as well. So um, Janelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, first off, we've been talking about this counselling class in Ecuador. Uh, What do you make of it? 
Um, so basically, this whole idea of domestic violence rehabilitation, or in certain quarters of the world, um, the phrase better intervention programs, especially in the US, lah, that term is used. So this idea is actually not that new. Um, but I'm really glad that Ecuador is doing something like this. Um, it's just that in the current landscape, there are a variety of ways in which these programs can be carried out. Um, but I think what Ecuador is trying to do, um, which is very skills and value-based, um, can be empowering because um, it was mentioned in the article that Ecuador does have a substantial femicide rate. Um, and by that, we can infer, and also based on research, lah, uh, Ecuador does have a very patriarchal culture. So if you were to tackle it from a very traditional sociocultural narrative, you know, where you try to preach to, um, you know, like the community about power and privilege uh, historically for men, um, it might not get through that easily. So to approach it in this manner where to talk about things like, you know, like assertiveness, communication skills, uh, conflict resolution skills, um, it's, it will be a lot more acceptable uh, as a starting point. Um, and it will basically increase men's receptivity to effect change in their relationships. And um, I guess in a wider picture, that can be a very good basis uh, to start from. Lah. Yeah. So when it comes to these domestic violence rehabilitation programs, I mean, what are your thoughts? What do we know about how successful these programs are? Um, so Singapore, for instance, they they actually, according to Section 65 5B of the Women's Charter, um, this provision actually empowers the family court to mandate perpetrators to go through counselling alongside being imposed with protection orders. So in that way, that was already implemented since 2009-2010, if I'm not mistaken. So in that sense, Singapore is actually a lot more progressive than Malaysia. Uh, unfortunately, I've not been able to find statistics on the effectiveness of this program. So we leave it at that for now. But if I were to really talk about the success rate of you know, domestic violence uh, rehabilitation programs in general, I think I might have to look to the West because a lot of research has been done into looking into its effectiveness. One of the landmark that's more famous is actually the Duluth model. This model is a very famous one that I think will be also well known in the women's rights movement in Malaysia. But the Duluth model in the US, they actually have these uh, non-violence classes taught among male perpetrators across the country. Um, it's court ordered as well. They focus a lot on the theory of power and privilege historically of men as a group to try to debunk um, you know, patriarchal narratives about men's role in the household and in society. Uh, over the years, this model has evolved to include cognitive behavioral therapy. If I were to explain a bit about what CBT is, basically it's to change, it strives to change the content of your thoughts. It operates on this assumption that, you know, you have dysfunctional behavioral patterns because you have dysfunctional thoughts. So the way to do it is to change the content of those thoughts. So that's what Duluth model has been doing. But unfortunately, in rigorous research studies across the years, even as far back as 2004, it was found that the Duluth model has modest effects at best. As a result of this, and also CBT's limited effectiveness in reducing reoffending, uh, over the last few years, if I'm not mistaken, a new modality has emerged. Um, and it's called the Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Uh, it was actually piloted by the Iowa state government, in collaboration with the researcher. Research studies were being conducted in 2019 and 2020. Um, and they actually found that reoffending rates actually reduce even one year after the intervention, much more 
much more and significantly so compared to the Duluth model. That's one. And they also conducted a five-year follow-up down the line uh, among the same group of uh, perpetrators who received the treatment for ACT. And they found that uh, there were fewer re-offending rates as well. So it seems that based on preliminary research, um, ACT uh, may have an advantage uh, in reducing uh, re-offending rates among domestic violence perpetrators, at least in the US. So whether we can bring this model and extrapolate it here and see if it will work in Malaysia, that's I think that's for the future. But um, this is what I know right now with regards to the current landscape. And in Malaysia, what are the avenues for rehabilitation when it comes to men who commit domestic violence? It seems that at this stage, we don't have court-ordered or mandated counselling programmes for perpetrators. So in that sense, if, you know, if the perpetrators want to seek for, uh, you know, like mental health resources or counselling to try and understand themselves better and to work out their relationships, uh, basically to understand their own behaviour patterns so that they can improve their relationships with, you know, the survivors, I, unfortunately, it's at their own initiative lah. So it really depends on whether they are aware themselves of, you know, like these mental health resources and et cetera, or if, you know, they have persons within their networks who can refer them to these resources. So unfortunately, that's the case. Um, but then as well, um, right now, it seems as well that there is a lack of public interest with regards to the idea of domestic violence rehabilitation among perpetrators. Um, because I, I came across a petition that's issued by a social enterprise called Mums Village Asia. I think it was sometime last year. Uh, it was a petition that actually called for better interventions um, and uh, on change.org. So the signatures garnered, I think over a few months last year, it was only 2,757 digital signatures. So and, and it was across a few months last year. So in that sense, the traction, I mean, there seems to be, um, you know, like public interest wasn't, hasn't been so high. And I've not seen any statements released by the Women's Ministry about this last year, nor this year. So it seems like we are still very much focused on, you know, supporting uh, survivors of domestic violence, which is fine. And we have a lot of areas improvement for that. Uh, but yes, we haven't gotten to that stage yet. Now, supporters of this approach point out that the threat of arrest and incarceration is a deterrent, but not a cure. Could you help us understand this? So if I were to go to arrest and incarceration, incarceration sorry, um, just to give a bit of a background information as to like why, um, you know, like globally, there's this, um, you know, like there's this recognition that arrest can have a certain effect on perpetrators. Well, if I were to go back, I probably would go back to the 1984 study done in the US by Sherman and Burke which was called the Minneapolis Domestic Violence Experiment. And it was in this 1984 study that found that um, arrest had a moderate, relatively good effect in deterring um, perpetrators from reoffending. Because of this, that's why there, you see these mandatory arrest policies in, um, in, in the US and in other countries as well. But further down the line, when research was done again, taking into account the various factors, right, um, it was actually found that there's one factor that needs to be accounted for. For example, the subtype of the perpetrator. If it's a generally violent or antisocial type-like perpetrator, even if you arrest that person or even if you impose sentencing, the effect on that type of perpetrator is actually not significant. A potential explanation to this is because the perpetrator, but then again, this is very tentative uh, because you know still need a lot of... Uh, 
validation. <laughs> but at least from what I've seen in the research literature, um, it seems that this type of perpetrator uh, is not motivated enough. Like, like the arrest and the incarceration, they're not, deter- they not enough of deterrence. Um, they may perceive it to not be a big enough risk for them. So the flip side of this, right, is that people would argue that these people have committed abuse, they shouldn't get away with just attending therapy. What are your thoughts on this? If you were to just do corrective and not do and not approach the rehabilitative aspects, you are not giving perpetrators because domestic violence perpetrators, right, is is not they are a very heterogeneous population as well. You you have the very antisocial ones, um, at least classified by research, like the subtype. You also have the family-only ones, which you know, um, they are very socially adjusted. They may not be aware that that they are actually committing domestic violence and get and and the arrest and incarceration may end up, you know, like making them realize, oh, actually this is wrong. So in light of the heterogeneity of that population, um, to not give them a chance to actually understand their behavioral patterns and to change, well, I it may not be as feasible. And if you and and to a certain extent, you also have to take into consideration um, the sentencing that is available in the penal code right now. Um, and as most of us, at least in women's rights landscape, would be aware of, um, the the Domestic Violence Act is read together with the penal code. So depending on what the perpetrator is committed, the corresponding provision in the penal code will be read together, right? So if you don't incorporate the rehabilitative aspect, and let's say if the person is at great risk of reoffending, can you imagine sending the person to jail or imposing a fine? And the person has to go through it many times. And you are also, most importantly, putting risk physically, mentally to the survivor. Because when you send the perpetrator to jail, when you put the person through a fine, um, you don't know whether the survivor will be together with the perpetrator or whether he or she will go back to that, that, that perpetrator when he or she comes out. So what if the you know what if the survivor goes back to the perpetrator after you know the sentencing is done? And if the person reoffends again, then the impact on the victim or the survivor would be immense. Um, the re-traumatization and everything. So why would you want survivors to go through that when at least, you know, there may be some chance at allowing the perpetrator to understand, you know, like, oh, what he or she is doing in that context, um, you know, this behavioral pattern or this manner of responding in a relationship um, is actually dysfunctional. And it only takes a program to realize that and to find ways to change those patterns. So in a sense, it costs, it, it also imposes less costs to the government because when you when a person reoffends, right, policing resources also go to that perpetrator. Why would you want to allocate the same perpetrator time and time again when these resources can be better allocated elsewhere to more high priority crime areas, right? Or crime priorities. So that's one argument, right? Yeah. So if we were to consider implementing counseling or therapy for those convicted of domestic violence, what might that look like? What kind of approach could we take? So um, if I were to touch on what I've mentioned earlier with regards to the success, seemingly successful new modality, which is the acceptance and commitment therapy, I honestly think that that's something that can be considered because um, I did take a look at the rough session structure that was being implemented and piloted by the Iowa state government. And uh, this ACT program, in short, they called it ACTV. So what ACTV does is that instead of trying to, instead of, changing your the, the content of your thoughts, right? 
It actually teaches you to accept what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and finding new ways to respond. So ultimately, what's important here is behavioral change. You may have these thoughts, fine. What's more important is that you find ways to respond. That means like when you behave towards someone, even though you may have, you know, like certain thoughts in your head, right? But ultimately, how you respond to that person in that situation is not uh, it's not basically it goes against that it doesn't it doesn't you're not influenced by those thoughts so I think um, for me like being in women's rights movement right obviously to uh, to 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 um, eradicate patriarchal norms is so important but at the same time um, it's also important to take into account certain realities whereby you may need longer time to really effect like systematic cultural change, you know, like whether it's patriarchy and, um, and especially sexism. So implementing acceptance and commitment therapy whilst trying to debunk, uh, sorry, trying to eradicate patriarchy in the long term, I think ACT is a very um, realistic and sustainable modality. And as a society, do you think we're ready for a shift like this? I guess to a certain extent, yes lah. Um, because, okay, on one hand, I have to say our patriarchal norms are still quite prevalent. Uh, if I have to quote a couple of examples, right? Um, one is actually uh, a couple of examples basically referring to the statistics from WAO's 2021 study on Malaysian public attitudes and perceptions uh, towards violence against women. Lah. So if I'll give you stats, right? Um, in relation to the statement of most domestic violence cases are actually just a normal reaction from everyday stress and frustration. I mean, a whopping 69.2% either explicitly believe it or express complicity towards this statement. So, yeah, awareness levels at least towards this aspect of domestic violence as inherently a power power thing instead of a stress thing that, that once needs to be addressed. If I were to go on and elucidate another statement, right? Like for example, sometimes a woman can make a man so angry that he hits her when he didn't mean to, right? I mean... There's another swapping 64.7% who either believe it or is complicit towards agreeing that statement. So um, patriarchal norms in one on one hand, they're still prevalent. So it can be challenging. But on the other hand, I think there is something encouraging, which is that um, society is also increasingly receptive towards you know, mental health and uh, increasing accessibility to mental health services in an affordable and quality manner. Mm. So going back to the Ecuador example, it's been reported that some men were initially unwilling to attend these sessions because of shame or embarrassment. What are some ways that this can be addressed? So I'd like to point out that it seems that the shame and embarrassment experienced by these Ecuadorian men um, seems to be social cultural in origin. La. By that, I mean, um, you know, the traditional masculinity norms whereby men are expected to, to be tough, to be macho, to be invulnerable. And to a certain extent, this may be true because uh, I did look up Ecuador's basic information about Ecuador. And it seems like Ecuador has one of the highest masculinity rate rankings in Latin America. So that means that there is a very high differentiation of gender roles. Like, you know, men can only do certain things. Women can do only certain things. And um, there's also very high levels of male domination in traditional power structures. So in that sense, I guess um, the shame and embarrassment can be very patriarchal or masculinity related. As to how this can be addressed, and it looks like UN Women is trying to work on something, at least with local NGOs. And it seems that they're trying to teach men to question stereotypical masculine patterns and to explore different ways of expressing it. Uh, basically, different ways of expressing masculinity in non-violent ways. So 
I think this is one way to go. But this alone will not be enough because we have to remember as well that many of us still internalize a lot of traditional generals because of gender socialization. These generals can be actually really toxic. And it is these gender stereotypes that to some extent can perpetuate you know, the tendency for violence because men believe that they can do certain things whilst women are upheld to you know, submissive and uh, passive roles. So yeah. Janelle, thank you so much for speaking with us today. That was Janelle Dan, Informations and Communications Officer from AWAM, talking about the role that counselling can play when it comes to preventing perpetrators of domestic violence from reoffending, right? Uh, and this is based on court-mandated counselling in Ecuador, uh, a country in which there is a high rate of this sort of gender-based violence. They're called the Men's Club for Good Treatment, and so far they have had really really very promising results. So we'd like to hear from you. Do you think that counselling like this might be helpful here in Malaysia? You can call us, double seven double three two nine hundred, WhatsApp, or drop us a voice note there at 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my, BFM 89.9, The Business Station.